Habits and Health, Episode 9. Welcome to the podcast where we give you ideas on habits you can create that will help your health. Today's episode is with Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro. She is a doctor, a health coach. She's got a PhD in human nutrition, in food and exercise. I mean, her list of credentials is pretty impressive. And we talk about many different areas today about body image, um, about various aspects of health. And and obviously, we dig into habits as well. So that's coming up very soon. If you do like this episode, why not share it with someone who you feel will get some real value from this? Please do subscribe to the podcast so you can get it every Tuesday lunchtime when it's released. And it would be great if you would leave a review for us. That really lets me know how what you think about the podcast and you know if there's any areas it can be improved. But it also lets other people know about you know, the more reviews we have, the more likely someone who discovers the podcast maybe by search will actually take a chance and have a listen to it and see what they think hope you enjoy this week's episode habits and health my guest today is dr gabrielle fandaro how you doing gabrielle i'm good how are you I'm very well. I'm very kind of jealous at the moment. I was jealous when Shannon came on, your your partner in crime, I suppose, we could say, <laughs> because she was in Bali when I was speaking to her. And now I found mm-hmm. out you're about to go to Mexico. I mean, well, what a life you two have. I know. I know. She uh, she is quite the digital nomad. She was my inspiration to go about life that way for about a year um, before I settled here in Arizona. So, um, yeah, it's it's an adventure for sure. Mm. And is Arizona where you're from? No, actually, I uh, grew up for the most part in Michigan. And so I have over the course of my 30 some years migrated (laughs) farther south and then farther west. So um, Michigan to Virginia, where I stayed for 10 years. And then I was in Georgia for five and then nomadic for about a year and a half or so. And um, just settled out in Arizona here back in August. I, um, I bought a house and... Um, now like a, a grown-up, I guess. <laughs> and I, I would have thought that the weather was far better in Michigan than it is where you are now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, if you love uh, eight feet of snow um, and perpetual winter, it's great. And I, I have to say the summers in Michigan are nice. They're a little bit um, uh, milder than the summers out here. We get up to, I think, like 47 Celsius um, in, in the desert here. So, uh, But mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I know which one I prefer out of the two. The choice of the two, yeah. So, so Gabby, tell you the listeners about what is it that you do? What, what do you specialize in? Mm, oh, that's a good question. So I would say that I wear two hats um, uh, and one hat fits inside the other. <laughs> so the biggest hat that I wear is just um, in helping people mm, figure out what they really want to do and then help them do that. Uh, and I ensure that whatever journey we're on, my clients are fully informed and they know that they're in the driver's seat and I am their travel guide to their destination. And uh, within that, I also have a background in what people would refer to, I think, as gut health. Uh, But I have my PhD uh, in the area of human nutrition, metabolism and probiotic supplementation. So uh, about 10 years ago, before it was super cool, I started studying the gut microbiome and I had the amazing fortune of spending 
some four years um, teaching people about it and speaking internationally as part of Renaissance periodization. Um, So I, at the heart of what I do uh, is providing evidence-based information and dispelling a lot of the myths um, that are really pervasive, especially uh, in diet culture and sort of the diet culture gut microbiome overlap um, of gut health. Wow, there's so much to, to dig into there. Um, where to start? Well, let's start with the gut health because, mm-hmm. as, as you mentioned, you kind of alluded to there, it's becoming almost fashionable in the last sort of year for people to mm-hmm. be talking about um, gut health. And mm-hmm. for, for people, even though I think there's still a lot of people who aren't aware of how important that is. So do, do you want to mm-hmm. maybe let people know why it is so important? Oh, Absolutely. So when, when people are talking about gut health, I have, um, I've been asked sort of like the definition of gut health quite a few times, and there's no real definition, uh, not that you would find in, you know, a textbook or a research paper, but I think people are mostly referring to um, the absence of disease in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, comfortable digestion, so, you know, a tolerable amount of gas or bloating, comfortable bowel movements, and Also, perhaps um, most significantly, a diverse, uh, resilient, and adaptive group of microbes, so microorganisms that reside in the gastrointestinal tract. And those microorganisms play a very clear role in um, energy harvesting and nutrient assimilation from our diet. So they take the parts of our diets that we can't really extract energy from, and they extract the energy for us. And they also play a role in immune function, uh, really from the time that we're born. Uh, they're, they're helping to educate and um, mature our immune cells all the way up to uh, current day pathogen defense, that they're helping to control the levels of potential pathogens that we might ingest or be inhabited by. And they also play a role in the periphery, so, so the tissues outside of the gut. They play a role in um, skeletal muscle metabolism, our ability to switch between using glucose versus fats for energy. They probably also play a role in um, behavior uh, and and perhaps even mood uh, and also play a role in the development of all of these systems. Um, and we know the, the vast majority of this from rodent models because we can uh, – grow rodents or other animals without a gut uh, microbiome, without any microorganisms, and we find that they don't develop normally. Um, And while we don't have any causative links between the gut microbiome and any disease, we have started to identify patterns of um, differences uh, that, that we see in people who have various diseases versus those who don't. And so we still aren't sure whether it's the disease that might be causing the, the different um, abu- the different relative abundance of microbes or the other way around, or if, if a causal link even exists. Um, but we do see that there is a relationship between health and disease and the microbiome and also our dietary uh, habits and our physical activity habits as well. I'm wondering, as you were speaking there, what it is that surprises people most. I mean, some of the things you just said, like, for example, how our, the, our bacteria and our gut affects our behavior and our mood. I mean, I would, I would imagine that is as a real surprise for most people. You know, I think that um, some people might actually make assumptions 
that that we haven't been able to support yet. <laughs> so, and it could be because you know I'm existing in in the realm where um, people are really excited about gut health and, and they're excited about the possibilities to the point that they might um, draw conclusions before we actually have the data there. You know, and so people are. Um, recommending like probiotics or, you know, certain diets to treat um, uh, autism spectrum disorder, for example, or um, other, you know, mental illnesses such as depression or anxiety. And um, as compelling as the early research is, we don't have strong enough data to indicate that those would be safe or effective and in some cases, some of the interventions actually seem to, to make things worse in humans. So um, we have to be very careful and, you know, we can be excited, but still also be, I think, cautious about um, what, we're, what we're claiming and what we're recommending. Um, but it, it probably is surprising to some people that we have these this sort of bi-directional communication between mm. the gut and the brain. And so um, via the, the vagus nerve, so that's the nerve that really controls most of our rest and digest functions, uh, we can communicate in that way. And we actually also even have sort of a separate nervous system called the enteric nervous system that helps to regulate uh, our gastrointestinal function um, kind of independent from the brain, which is interesting to think about, you know, that, that it sort of is, uh, it's the second brain. Sometimes people say that. Mm. How, how much when we are, you know, when we get prescribed antibiotics and so on, how mm-hmm. much, how, how does that affect the, the microbiome? It really depends on the type of antibiotic and the microbiome to which it's applied. So there are some antibiotics and obviously antibiotics are made to kill bacteria (laughs) and the vast majority of microbes in our gut happen to be bacteria. (laughs) So, um, we, we have not yet refined that type of, of medicine to be able to just pinpoint the pathogenic or, or disease-causing microbes. Mm-hmm. And really, we're, we're inhabited by pathogenic microbes in, normally. So, so they're not even always, you know, bad guys. Um, but depending on the type of antibiotic we're taking, we may see pretty minimal effects uh, on just a few different microbes that happen to um, all have in common whatever it is that the antibiotic acts on. Uh, or we might see really widespread effects. We might see a, a really large uh, loss of life and diversity in the microbiome. And we might bounce back in a few days or in a couple of weeks, or we might see that there's almost a permanent change, you know, out to six months or a year. Now, that being said, it doesn't necessarily mean that that change is indicative of a disease state or, you know, dysbiosis that a lot of people are kind of using to mean something bad. It could be that it is just an altered healthy state. It's a new state. So so the microbes have adapted to that challenge and they have maybe changed uh, membership but they haven't necessarily lost function. So it's not just the, the members of the, the community that matter, but it's their function. It's their genetic material. And um, fortunately, most of us have really resilient uh, microbiomes and a high level of redundancy. So even if we lose a few, the others can sort of pick up the slack and say, oh, well, we know how to metabolize that. So that's all right. You know, this one, this one lost out, you know, we'll we'll pick up from there. But when we do see a a really large um, reduction in diversity, 
then we, we run the risk of having potential overgrowths of those pathogens that at low levels don't cause any problems. But once they sense that their numbers are increasing and they can potentially overcome host defense, that's when they'll start producing those virulence factors and they can actually cause disease. Uh, and that's what we would see with C. difficile. So that happens in people who are taking um, you know, really strong antibiotics for a fairly long period of time that uh, C. diff, which is a, a normal inhabitant, might start to grow um, you know, beyond what is um, a, a safe relative abundance, if, if we want to say that, and then can cause disease. So, so what is the issue then when someone is prescribed antibiotics and they don't finish the full course? So what is it that happens there then? Mm. So imagine that you are trying to get rid of um, like a bug infestation in your house mm. and you uh, have killed all of the bugs that you can see um, and some that sneak out and whatnot. And you're kind of like, well, I guess you know, I don't see any more. And so they must all be gone. And all you've really done is gotten rid of the ones that were, you know, brave enough to come out uh, of the woodwork. Um, and the rest of them are still just kind of hanging out and increasing in numbers and they're just hiding. Um, and it's kind of like that when we're using an antibiotic and we don't take the full course, we might feel better before it's done, but that doesn't mean that we have really controlled the, the numbers of pathogens effectively. Hmm. And what can happen with bacteria is that they can, um, they can actually transfer their genetic material within one generation. So it's called a horizontal gene transfer. So you may have some bacteria that have developed a resistance to that antibiotic. And that's why they're still alive. And mm. they then transfer those genes, they transfer that resistance to other bacteria uh, around them. And now they also are resistant to that antibiotic. Mm. And then as they divide and they start to spread that resistance, now the antibiotic will no longer work. And if you go on to infect someone else with those bacteria, then the antibiotic will not work for that person either. So we have to make sure that we are taking the antibiotic all the way through so that we really suppress those bacteria and they don't uh, have the ability to um, rapidly multiply and spread that resistance. Because it's fascinating that the, the, the numbers of bacteria compared to cells are, I mean, there's no comparison, is there? There's like, what, trillions of bacteria and there's, I don't know, how many cells are there? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting the way that that um, statistic has evolved because it sort of, it depends on whether you're counting red blood cells as being human cells. So um, I think that the updated version used to be kind of like a, a 10 to one or a two to one. And it's really, so it's sort of a one to one of all of the human cells in our body to all of the bacterial cells in our GI tract. But where we're vastly outnumbered is in genetic material. So they have just a, an amazing magnitude uh, of, of genes that they can express. Right. Whereas humans have a much lower uh, number of genes. So we basically can't, can't uh, engage in as many functions as the bacteria can. And that's really helpful to us and the bacteria and the other microbes as well. And it's helpful to us because we can kind of outsource those metabolic functions and, they benefit us in that way. And in turn, we, we feed them and we give them a place to live. In, in terms of, of habits, what mm -hmm. are our healthy habits to, that, that are good for our microbiome? 
Uh, the foundational habits are nothing super sexy or exciting. People, I, I often see people recommending, you know, everyone should take a probiotic. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really not the case. <laughs> Probiotics do have some applications, but they're very, um, they're, they're specific, they're strain specific. So the type of probiotic that you're taking matters. Mm-hmm. And they're fairly specific to um, what they can actually help with. So they have fairly limited applications um, based on, on the current data. So the foundational habits that would be most supportive of a diverse and adaptive microbiome would actually be uh, eating a variety of plant foods. So it doesn't have to be vegetables, but fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, things that provide um, fiber, which is considered a microbe accessible carbohydrate. So fibers mm-hmm. contain um, chemical bonds that we can't break down with our digestive enzymes. And so they pass to the mm-hmm. colon and then they're metabolized by the bacteria there. And those bacteria um, will sometimes produce gas, which we have to pass, but they'll also sometimes produce short chain fatty acids. And those are actually beneficial to us. So um, along with our diverse and plant centric diet, because it can be omnivorous, engaging in regular physical activity. So another determinant of microbial diversity is cardiovascular fitness. Mm -hmm. And it has been illustrated in in quite a few um, studies on various types of athletes and recreational exercisers that people who engage in physical activity uh, tend to have more diverse microbiomes. And there's sort of a dose-dependent relationship there too. So as we engage in, in more physical activity, Um, we tend to see uh, greater diversity up to a point because there can also be a point of diminishing returns where maybe we're engaging in a really uh, high level of endurance exercise and high intensities and that can cause some GI distress and not necessarily that that um, directly affects the microbiome, but it can just make it really difficult for us to, to eat enough and to assimilate nutrients. You know, if we're having really severe stomach pain and and loose stool and things like that after a run. So would it be affected by if you were doing a lot of anaerobic exercise, would would that affect it? We still don't know that. (laughs) So um, there are, there are so few studies that have been done on um, that, that have even included resistance training and looked at the microbiome. Um, So there has been, there've been a couple observational studies that have determined the relationship between microbial diversity and diet in people who are doing resistance training. Hmm. And what we found is uh, thus far, based on just a couple of studies, that it seems that people who are not ingesting adequate fiber don't seem to fully realize the benefits of exercise on diversity. Hmm. So it seems that that might be sort of a mediator with that, with, with the relation between the relationship between exercise and microbial diversity. And that's been shown in cross country runners and also um, bodybuilders. Hmm. Um, but outside of that, and, and one other study that I know of that, that looked at people who are re- engaging in resistance training and supplementing with whey protein, um, they weren't really looking at the effects of resistance training. They were just looking at the effects of a whole lifestyle change. And they did see an increase in diversity, but we don't really know exactly why. Mm. Um, there are really no other studies that have looked at resistance training or, or high intensity, you know, sort of like hit type workouts. Mm. 
Um, but I have been collaborating with a faculty member um, out of Lipscomb University in Tennessee uh, on a resistance training study. So we're actually going to be looking at some um, gender specific or sex specific differences in um, microbial populations in athletes and then how uh, an intense bout of resistance training might affect um, intestinal permeability and GI function and whether some of the GI distress that we experience after intense exercise might be mediated by um, sex-specific differences in the microbiota. Yeah, there's so many more questions I'd like to continue with on that whole kind of microbiome, but let's let's kind of step back and what got you into all this in the first place? How did you develop this kind of fascination for this whole area? Well, it actually was just a serendipitous event because I started um, my PhD actually just studying the effects of high fat feeding on skeletal muscle hypertrophy. And I was uh, in a lab that really studied skeletal muscle physiology and biochemistry. So we were really looking at human metabolism. And part of the study design quite often was the application of something called LPS or lipopolysaccharide, either to skeletal muscle cells that we had taken out of a a mouse or a human um, or to, to live mice that we would inject them with this. And then we would measure changes in metabolic function. And I was curious about what this was supposed to represent. You know, what's the physiological relevance of this injection? And as it turns out, LPS is part of the cell wall of certain bacteria. And when those bacteria die or are destroyed, that LPS uh, endotoxin is what it's called, can potentially leave the intestines and bind to immune receptors on, on various tissues throughout the body. And one of those tissues is skeletal muscle. And I thought, well, why don't we look at the gut then? I mean, if this is something that that we have seen is associated with high fat feeding, um, type 2 diabetes, and the presence of obesity, then maybe we can get to the source and see if there's an intervention available. Hmm. And initially, there was some resistance because we were not um, really an an intestine lab. You know, we didn't, we weren't looking at that. It was just, this was sort of like our, our, our mode of inducing metabolic inflexibility, um, but there, some funding became available to perform a probiotics uh, study. And so we determined, we, we ended up designing the study that uh, would use probiotics as, a, as an intervention during a high fat feeding um, uh, experiment. So it, it, we did this in two rounds. We had mice and then we had humans. And it was basically just, you know, several weeks of feeding mice, um, what's essentially like cookie dough. <laughs> and uh, with the human, with the human subjects, they had, you know, really high fat milkshakes and whatnot. And uh, we wanted to see if those probiotics would help to reduce either fat gain or um, insulin resistance or offer some protective mechanism against the, the associated inflammation. Um, And it was really just a means to an end because I wanted to get my doctorate so I could teach. And so after I finished that, it was five years um, and I stayed on for a teaching fellowship for, uh, you know, two extra years after I had mostly finished things. I thought, okay, I'm I'm finally done. You know, I'm going to go on and be a professor. And I did that for three years until I was uh, recruited by Renaissance Periodization um, to be a coach. And I coached part-time while I was teaching for a year and then realized I really needed to kind of pick one. <laughs> and, and the coaching was incredibly fulfilling and um, an area where I thought I could grow and learn and, 
and be creative. And so it was actually Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization that recommended that I start talking about gut health because this was back in 2017 and it seemed like it was kind of just an emerging trend. And he said, don't you have your PhD in something like this? And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much exactly this. I guess I can talk about it. And so I started, uh, I did my first podcast with Steve Hall in Revive, from Revive Stronger in, I think, June 2017. And then I had, you know, one more podcast the next month and then two the month after that. And then all of a sudden, you know, like seven podcasts in a week. And I've learned not to do that because it tires me out. But <laughs> it's just been um, sort of an exponential growth, you know, of interest in the field. And I just happened to have done you know, my doctorate in it. And I finished that in 2014 and, and people weren't really excited about it yet. Hmm. And, and someone has left you were talking about and they said, I, I love the the name of your, your business, uh, Vitamin PhD. I think it's such a great name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was, uh, it's, it's kind of um, evolved over time. Like initially it was vitamin PhD. It was like, get your daily dose of evidence-based information. Um, and And my coaching approach and and obviously coaching framework um, has changed since then because when I started my Instagram and when I started my blog, it was just to provide information. I mean, I, I wasn't coaching yet when I started everything. And then I thought, okay, well, I want this information to actually, you know, help people. And, um, and, and so my messaging started to change a little bit. And I've actually recently rebranded, I guess I would say. Um, now I'm, I'm completely independent and, and vitamin PhD is my thing now. Um, so I had a sort of my side business for a while and um, I thought, you know, there's more to it than giving people information. Mm-hmm. And as I, as my messaging has changed, but a lot of my content is still stable. I mean, I still talk about gut health and the gut microbiome. Um, but I do it in a way now that is hopefully empowering to people and without invalidating their experiences. So for example, if a person has, has gone, um, and gotten a food sensitivity test, you know, or, or some other test that might not be valid, uh, it's not super helpful to say, well, you know, that, that was wrong. Those aren't valid. That's not a useful test because they need and, and deserve validation of their experiences first. And so I've been talking about this for a while and, and I've had a few people, a few podcast hosts that said, oh, you know, you really mix science and compassion so well. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, that really resonates with me. Compassion is definitely one of my main values. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was thinking about how I want to, you know, redo my website finally after four years, because <laughs> it, it kind of looked like a sixth graders portfolio project before, I was like, you know, I want to express what I'm about and I still want it to be like, it's a vitamin, you know, it's something that you can take. It's a supplement. Um, and, and I was thinking about, you know, what are words that are associated with vitamins and minerals and, and um, fortify, like fortification and enrichment came to mind. And then I realized it just like hit me one day, oh, science fortified with compassion. So that is, that's my um, aim now. You know, that's, that's my, my mission. And, and you mentioned there about that your previous approach was kind of almost just to give information. And so how mm-hmm. has that changed? What, what is it that you do now then? I still give information, but now it's with permission. <laughs> so um, I, I like to borrow from the motivational interviewing course that I did with, with Shannon, who was on with you um, several podcasts ago. And, and um so motivational interviewing for people who, are, who don't know, uh, very basically, it's a way of being with someone. 
It's a, it's a set of skills, but they are embodied by a specific spirit. And a little more specifically, it's a, it's a way of having a conversation about change with someone. Mm. It's not a way to get someone to change. It's just a way to create a space where they feel comfortable talking about it, knowing that they are uh, accepted whether they change or not. And so when I give information, it comes later uh, in the conversation. It comes at a time when they're ready to create a plan. And my information uh, helps to supplement their learning journey. And I didn't even come up with supplement. That was Bill Miller and, and Steve Rolnick and Teresa Moyer. So uh, I love that, though, that, that, you know, this is my expertise has a specific place and a role, but it is as a supplement to their journey, it enriches their journey and it keeps them informed. So what, whatever choice they make, um, you know, they, they're doing that with the best uh, information, uh, whether it's about nutrition or, or gut health. Um, and so they are still in the driver's seat and they have a really great map of where they might want to go. And how, how has that changed both from your point of view, the experience for the client and the experience for you? Mm. I think it was it was an adjustment for, for, for both parties. And I have had some clients that I've been working with now for four years and, um, you know, they've said that they can tell that the approach has changed mm. and they really like it. You know, they really they have they've enjoyed the process. And I've been transparent about it the whole time to say, you know, I, I like I know that I, I did done things this other way before. And, you know, I feel um, that this other way is actually is better and, and more effective. Mm. And they know that what I'm doing is empirically based, you know, it's evidence based. It's something that we find in the literature. You know, these are effective practices. Um, and also I feel that they're more authentic to the way that I like to interact with people. Mm. Um, but it did take an adjustment on, on my part to um, really reflect on who, who I thought I should be as a coach and I think who, and it's, it's something I think a lot of coaches go through that we are initially, I think, sort of programmed to operate as the experts that are providing information and telling people what to do. And sometimes clients will come to us with that expectation, expectation and say, tell me what to do. And so right off the bat, it's really important to validate their experience. Um, you know, I know that you've had, you know, experiences like this before, um, Find out what works for them and then have a conversation to where you can meet in the middle about, you know, your shared expectations. And, and here is, here's how I view myself as a coach. I'm your travel guide. Tell me where you want to go. We can talk about the ways to get there and I'll make sure that it is uh, safe and, uh, you know, only relatively bumpy. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and you share with me your unique experiences and expertise and I think where I find it, where I found it like the most tangible was in the conversation. So when you're doing telehealth um, and, and you've kind of shifted from providing a lot of information to instead, um, you know, reflecting a lot and asking questions, sometimes there are some more pregnant pauses because you're, the client is waiting for you to tell them something. Mm-hmm. And all you've done is you've reflected something back to them, you know, to, mm-hmm. to show that you understand. And it's just waiting for them to give you more information. Mm-hmm. But that has really smoothed over mm-hmm. time. Um, and I also now ask fewer questions than I did even when I started changing my approach. 
because sometimes that can can turn into just like an information seeking mission, you know, Mm -hmm. and the client thinks, okay, I have to give you this information. Um, But when you can reflect really skillfully and, and show that understanding, that is still an invitation for them to give you more information and for them to start uh, giving you more change talk or sustained talk, depending on, you know, their, where they are in their um, balance of sort of ambivalence and, and desire to change. Um, and I think uh, with, with clients, it can be an understandable um, adjustment and sometimes maybe a little bit um, maybe uncomfortable because they might not have had experiences like that in the past where they were really in the driver's seat. And so there's, uh, you know, also I think it needs to be a very open level of communication about where my expertise fits in versus where their expertise fits in. And that even if I gave them the most scientific evidence-based, super duper fantastic nutrition plan, if it was totally unrealistic for them, then they would have a hard time adhering to it. And then they might feel that they're incapable or they would blame themselves. Um, And if I am a really judgmental person, I'll tell them like, oh, you don't want it bad enough or something. And and that's just not a helpful dynamic for anyone. So, um, you know, it's just about having those conversations about like what, what what are about our shared purpose and, and, um, you know, finding meaning in in coach versus client and um, you know, how we view ourselves and the dynamic and, um, always having an unconditional positive regard and acceptance and empathy and, and compassion. Um, And what I found that's a very new uh, development is that people have, have expressed that the way that they talk to themselves is different because they're starting to internalize the way that, that I regard them. And I think that's really one of the most like beautiful things that I could hear and not something that I really heard when I was starting off, um, you know, with nutrition coaching and providing information um, and, and more sort of like prescriptive ways of coaching. I find it interesting when you, you refer to yourself as a coach and yet we know that you're a doctor. Oh. <laughs> and so I, I, I would imagine it's not an approach that many doctors take or I could be wrong on that. What, what's your thoughts on that? I don't, you know, I, I guess I always, I always joke. I'm like, Oh, I'm not that kind of doctor. Like I, you know, I, um, I think it's really important to, to practice humility and, and realize that, um, my title is a reflection of a lot of dedication and, and, you know, work ethic and, and time and energy investment, um, and, a, and, you know, a passion for learning and a value of education. Um, but it doesn't place me like above anyone on some like hierarchy of, of human quality, you know, or worth. Um, and I think that is partly, you know, that's maybe why I'm drawn to, to motivational interviewing and, and positive psychology. Um, because I think that that is a very charitable and, and fulfilling and, um, even like mentally healthful perspective of other humans Mm. to say, um, you know, I think that people are inherently uh, valuable and worthwhile as humans and that humans are generally capable of change and are generally born um, capable of doing really great things, but we're also very vulnerable to, to influences that might make us do um, harmful things to ourselves or others. But Mm that we have the capacity to make changes. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll decide to make the changes and that's okay too. Um, but you know, I, I think that the way that I leverage my education and, and being a doctor <laughs> is that I have, um, sort of, I've been vetted in a way, you know, by, by the U S education system, um, and my peers and colleagues to say that I do have expertise in this field and that compared to someone who has not studied in the field, I probably have some more insights than they do. And, um, and, and so that's kind of how I couch it, you know, that this is my area of expertise and this is how I can best supplement your journey, you know, because I'll be able to tell you, hey, those tests are not accurate and I know exactly why. Here are the real limitations based on how, um, you know, this research technique actually works. And so it's a tool, but it's not something that, you know, puts me in charge of, of clients um, or, or gives me the agency to tell them what to do. When you're trying to help clients make changes, um, I'm wondering how for yourself, when you've, have you ever had trouble making changes in your own life at any stage? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I still do. I mean, it's, it's just a, a human experience, you know, ambivalence is, uh, ambivalence, the, the wanting of two things that are seemingly at odds. It's just a very human thing um, because we have a hard time of really predicting what we're going to do in the future. And we have sometimes a hard time accepting what we've done in the past. <laughs> and uh, we have a hard time making changes. You know, like we are, to some extent, we are creatures of habit. We do lots and lots of things habitually every day. We, we do lots of things on autopilot every day. Um, and we also have a hard time in some cases establishing new habits or breaking old ones. And I think to some extent that could be perhaps because we have some um, inaccurate beliefs or misconceptions about what it takes to make changes. So for example, people are, talk often about um, needing more self-control or needing more self-discipline or more motivation. And none of those things are um, like mono constructs that you can like turn up and down like a volume knob. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, and like self-control, for example, is not even really associated very closely with um, like, you know, people use it around food a lot. Oh, I wish I had more self-control so I would not eat this food. Um, and self-control does exist. There are various definitions, but it's, probably not the thing that we use to not eat food. <laughs> There's like some other construct. Um, but when we have those beliefs, you know, oh, I, I just don't have self-control. Um, I just can't be trusted around this one food. Then we may end up developing some maladaptive coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And, and where we see this manifesting with food is that people will restrict that food. It'll be an off-limits food. It's not allowed in the house. They can't be around it but it's a food that they really desire. And so when they are inevitably around that food, they eat it in uncomfortable amounts because they are predicting um, inaccurately that they won't be eating that food again. And so this is sort of the last supper effect. Um, and, and then, you know, they'll, then the cycle kind of just repeats over and over again. And so counterintuitively, 
um, often the solution to that is not more restriction, but it's actually liberation from restriction and uh, habituation to that food. So we start to increase our exposure to it and give ourselves permission to eat it. And along with other practices like mindfulness and making sure that our emotional needs are met, uh, over time, we, we end up just being okay with being around that food. Um, so this was something that actually I had done with peanut butter. Um, so I, I'll go ahead, I'll share my peanut butter story because I think a lot of people can relate to this one. Um, I had, so I had had an, a history of disordered eating when I was in college and grad school and um, competed as a weight class athlete and once even as, as a physique athlete. And those are both high risk sports for uh, eating pathology. Mm-hmm. And I got to a place where I felt very out of control around peanut butter. And I, if I didn't have, if I had it in the house, I would just eat the whole jar, you know, regardless of how I felt, it was just that I thought, okay, I'm not going to eat peanut butter again after this for a long time. So I'm just going to get it out of the way, just get it out of the house. And I thought, well, okay, that's not super effective. So how can I make this peanut butter less accessible? Maybe I'll modify my food environment and that can be effective. Um, And so in this case, I froze my peanut butter and it did help me to not eat that jar of peanut butter because it was frozen, but it was really sort of a band-aid on that habit loop. And whenever I was around other sources of peanut butter, I would eat an uncomfortable amount. And I thought, ah, you know, how am I going to get out of this? Like, am I going to have to freeze my peanut butter forever? And I ended up attending a seminar by Nancy Clark, who is a sports dietitian. um, And and she's really well-known and a pretty prolific dietitian. And she was talking about eating pathology in, in athletes um, to, to a, a, you know, it's just a small part of the overall presentation, but what really got me was she said, you know, if you have an athlete that really loves a food, um, you know, invite them to eat the food at every meal. And I thought, could I eat peanut butter at every meal? Oh my gosh. Like maybe I thought, you know, nothing else has worked. I'm just going to go ahead and eat peanut butter at every meal. It's going to be a tiny amount of peanut butter. You know, I still had to at that time, like hit my macros, but I was going to eat peanut butter at every meal. And I did that and it did not take long before I was like, I don't think I like peanut butter as much as I thought I liked peanut butter. Mm. And, and I, it was a concerted effort. I was like, we need peanut butter at every meal until I got to the point where I thought, oh, okay, I don't like, I don't really care about peanut butter. I can take it or leave it. Mm. And so I was able to have peanut butter in the house not frozen, just in my pantry. And I did this habitually over the course of several years with a bunch of different foods. And now it's things that, that, you know, at that time, seven years ago or so, I never thought that I'd be able to have in the house, cereal, cookies, peanut butter, whatever, like two pints of ice cream. I just know I can eat that whenever I want. And when I eat those things, I do it while I'm paying attention. And if it's not something I really enjoy, I don't have to finish it. Mm. So, so that was one change that I found to be really difficult to make, but it did take um, challenging, you know, my beliefs and then also really accepting outcomes that were outside of my control. I wasn't sure how the peanut butter experiment was going to go, but I had to be open to whatever outcome would, would be, you know, would result from that. Um, so that's something I work on a lot with, with clients is that we help to kind of foundationally, we establish what's really important, you know, determining their values um, and move through challenging some of those beliefs that can keep them stuck in cycles. And I guess somebody must be quite surprised when you 
say to you give them permission to yeah, no, keep on eating that they must be quite surprised you know, it's, it's um, I, I can't even say that I necessarily give them permission because I can tell them you have permission to eat any food and, and they have to give themselves permission. Yeah. And, and that is, I think, a, an understandable um, challenge because people are often very fearful that if they give themselves permission to eat, then they will eat everything forever without yeah. stopping. And, um, you know, and there, the other side of that fear is that they'll gain weight from it. Mm. And in some cases, the fear of weight gain is so significant that, um, they are, they feel stuck in that place of, you know, kind of losing out on quality of life because they're afraid of the repercussions of eating more and gaining weight. Mm. Um, and, you know, and that's a fear that I dealt with too. And it's part of, of our, of, of existing in a culture that judges weight gain and stigmatizes it and stigmatizes larger bodies. And so, you know, even people who are in normative bodies that could, you know, even if they did gain weight, they would still be in a normative body. Um, it's just the fear of weight gain that, that is, uh, you know, another thing to, to discuss another belief that has to be, um, examined and evaluated and really kind of dig down deep and, and see, you know, is that something that we can make space for? Because it's really a necessary part of the process that it is, um, in this case, it's weight neutral. Not all interventions for people who are trying to, you know, establish um, a, a an adaptive relationship with food are going to be weight neutral. But this is one example where we just kind of have to say, you know, I can't, to be transparent, I can't tell you what's going to happen to your body along the way. Um, and it's a really, it's a huge act of courage for people to do that, mm. you know, because there's, there's so much fear attached to what could happen. Mm. And, and talking on that issue, you, I, mean, I believe you've got some webinars coming up around that kind of subject. Yes. So <laughs> Shannon and I started um, this, the Bridging the Gap article series um, uh, like in, at the beginning of 2020, uh, really it started before that. And then we, we published it. it took us a long time to write the first article. So the first article was meant to really be just kind of a short blog, um, that I felt impassioned to write because I was watching people who didn't know anything about intuitive eating. Um, and I mean, the intuitive eating framework developed by Tripoli and Resch didn't know anything about it. And they were debating about its, uh, utility in its application. Mm. And, and, and they were doing it from a place of misinformation and misapplication. Mm. And I thought, well, that is not a useful conversation, <laughs> you know, and, and if we want to determine whether this actually works and for what we have to be correct about its intended applications before we say it's not going to work. Mm. So that was part of it. And then the other aspects were, you know, I was at this time, I was on my own journey of learning about, um, and practicing mindful eating and interoceptive awareness, which is our ability to accurately identify the, the internal sensations that we're experiencing. And I realized that there was this overlap between uh, the interoceptive awareness that we practice with like mindful eating and intuitive eating and autoregulation, which is very much on the opposite end of the, you know, that is like hardcore, that's like sports science, you know, when we're talking about uh, a, a progressive periodized training program that autoregulation is based on 
our ability to judge our rate of perceived exertion in an exercise. It's literally us saying on a scale of like five to 10, how much did this suck? It was a nine. And that is a completely subjective, intuitive process. Hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe I can bridge the gap here and say, hey, we're using the same skill in all of these ways. So you, you over on this side of the debate, you over on this side of the debate, see what we have in common? And then it turned into this huge, like 10 page article where we talked about that. And then we talked about, you know, the misconceptions around like the diets don't work and metabolically healthy obesity and, um, you know, the, the, the long-term, uh, long-term, like statistics of long-term weight management. And we just took this huge deep dive. And then months later we ended up at a place with four articles and what was kind of the first iteration of the comprehensive coaching framework, because we thought, well, is there not a way that we can help people with weight neutral or weight focused goals? Can't we meet in the middle and just like work with clients to help them reach their place of flourishing health? And that's where that model came from. And then as we were writing about this, you know, people started asking, oh, is this from a webinar? Are you guys going to do a presentation? And we were like, no, we're just writing because this is fun. And then all of a sudden we were like, we're going to do a webinar. And so we did that last year in October. Um, it was a three-part webinar series. So we talked about the origins, that first paper, um, and then our sort of like the process and the application of the comprehensive coaching framework. And we were really fortunate that we had feedback from people who are real experts, you know, psychologists, sports psychologists who could give us feedback and say, here's how you might refine the model. And so we, we did that. So it's always been this iterative framework that we're, that we're changing based on empirical evidence, based on feedback, based on our experiences. Um, and so we are, are putting that out again um, here in a few weeks So um, beginning of April, we're going to be putting that series out again and um, with updates, of course, because that's what we do. We can't ever say like anything is done. And Shannon has also put out a really excellent series of webinars on body image and we continue to, you know, write articles. So I have two more now that's taken, they've taken a more sociocultural um, and and sort of historical look at the origins of dieting and diet culture. And we have some more in the works for um, uh, clients and coaches taking a look at our, um, what we call the, the intentional eating spectrum. So it is a way to help clients kind of orient themselves toward an approach to nutrition based on their experiences, goals, and preferences. Um, and, and, you know, not to say that one way is better than the other because all ways have their, their pros and cons. And, um, so webinars on that and who knows what else the future holds. <laughs> well, we'll put, um, details of all of the webinars in the show notes, but what, what are the, what are the dates for the webinars? So it's going to be, um, every Thursday from like starting on April 8th. So those three Thursdays in a row, and then the following two Thursdays, we're going to be having our practical application sessions. So those are sort of like small group sessions where people can come in and ask questions and brainstorm. And we actually walk people through sort of like a real um, step-by-step process of how we engage with our clients with that model. Um, And we also have the Comprehensive Coaching Facebook community. Um, So that is a small but growing uh, group of actually coaches and clients who come together to have conversations about these topics. And um, 
uh, when we are hosting some of our, um, we, we do a, a monthly Q&A with them as well. So they get access to that. Um, and so, yeah, lots of kind of first, you know, like one-on-one attention and, um, and we both provide mentoring as well. So we're just trying to help people help other people. So the, the comprehensive coaching Facebook group you mentioned, who would that be relevant for? What kind of people? It would be, um, it, we are probably, you know, we're, we're, I would say it's maybe a three to one ratio of coaches to clients at the moment. Um, but it's really any coach that feels like they are kind of stuck in the middle between a weight focus versus weight neutral approach. They're trying to find their voice and they are looking for some context, you know, behind the, the claims like that, the, you know, really divergent claims and sort of like loud voices in the industry are making. And, and, you know, we have some coaches that are concerned. They don't want to cause harm, but they want to help their clients uh, and meet their clients where they are. So coaches who are kind of facing that, and then any clients who want to share their experiences um, because that is really one of the best, those, those voices are important, especially for new coaches to mm-hmm. hear from a client. Um, and then we also, uh, I'm partnering with um, some trainers who are establishing a website that will help to um, connect practitioners and clients and patients. And they are in our group um, uh, asking for feedback and so we're getting feedback from both coaches and clients. So if that's something that people would want to be involved with uh, starting in April, that would be uh, another great um, way to connect and, and collaborate too. We, I mean, time is flying and it often seems to in, in these episodes. But I, I wanted to dig into some of your, you know, before the the episode, I asked you about books that you would recommend. Oh, and yeah. I, and I wanted to go deep in that, but I don't think we're going to have time to go deep, but but you did, you've got some books that you, you say that you do recommend. So do you want to just sort of talk about those books and, and the reason why that you, you recommend them? Absolutely. Um, I'll try to remember all three that I recommended, but I know one was Momo by um, Michael End. He wrote The Never Ending Story. And actually, I just read that book. It was, um, it was recommended by a client of mine that I've been working with for a long time. And the reason she recommended it um, was there, well, she, it was, it was an indirect recommendation, but she actually quoted it. And she quoted a section that explains that Momo's special skill was listening. And the way that she listened to people helped them feel more capable. And I was just so touched that she shared that. And so it's, it's a young adult book. I mean, it's, it's for like kids, um, but it is about, um, it's a story about how time is made and spent. And I think it serves as a really um, valuable and helpful reminder that um, we can all be sort of victims of time theft and time famine uh, depending on what we're like, how we're spending our time, mm-hmm. and um, so I thought that that was just a really great book, and it reminds me to slow down sometimes when I can. Um, the other one I know was a Kurt Vonnegut book. Mm-hmm. I want to say it was Breakfast of Champions, it, and really, yeah, it was, yeah, brilliant. yeah. <laughs> so it could probably be like any Kurt Vonnegut book. I love Slaughterhouse Five. I love Face Worse Than Death. I love Breakfast of Champions. I, I picked Breakfast of Champions because I think Vonnegut's writing, um, even though he was writing in like like the 1960s and 1970s, it's still very poignant. It is still really relevant. And he just talks about like the human condition in society and um, 
how frustrated sometimes he was, but how entertained he was too at, at just how ridiculous humans can be. Um, and so he wrote sort of science fiction and, and he wrote, um, you know, about, about like politics and government, um, but in a really like kind of, I don't know, like a, just a funny, like dry humor type of way. And there's some really like hilarious illustrations in there too. He never took himself too seriously, which I really appreciate. Mm. Um, so that was one of them. And then I can't remember what the third book was. The, the last one was Modern Food, Moral Food. Oh yeah. So modern food, moral food. So this was written by, I want to say she's a food anthropologist. Um, so yeah, Helen Zoe Veit. Yep. Yep. She, so this was a really cool book. It's actually about the intersection of, uh, it's kind of like how self-control met calorie counting met, um, striving for a smaller body. And, and so it is a historical account of the rise of like how, um, posh it is to count calories and, and sort of the origins of dieting culture. Mm. So that's a really great place to get started. Uh, if you want to learn more, there's another book called Paradox of Plenty um, by Harvey Levenstein. It's a little bit longer um, and a little bit more um, of a textbook kind of read, but they're actually both, I think they're both textbooks. Mm. So those would be my recommendations for kind of getting into the history. Um, and I also have referenced that article in, in two of my articles on the Bridging the Gap website that talk about the history of and, and moralization of, of food and body and health. I get the impression that's another thing you have in common with Shannon, just like you read so many books. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I usually am reading a few at a time. So I'll have like a book that I'm reading for fun and then I'll have other books that I read for, for content creation and, and education. And so, yeah, Shannon and I have like a huge compilation of like reference, you know, research articles and books and whatnot. And I'm constantly adding to my list. So I have like, you know, Nietzsche and um, a whole slew of, of other like philosophy books too, that I'm like, Oh, I'll read these, you know, when I'm, when I'm on the beach next week. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I would like to ask you so many more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. So if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where's the best places to go? Yeah, they can find me on Facebook um, and Instagram at Vitamin PhD. Um, my website is vitaminphdnutrition.com. And if they want to see more of the Bridging the Gap work, that's btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. And, and finally, have you got a, a quotation that you like, I believe? Yes, yes. So I always just use the, the latter half of this quotation. Um, and to give some context, this was uh, Kurt Vonnegut speaking about his uncle. And he said that one of the things he really liked about his uncle was that when he was having um, a good time, when he was in just a, a really lovely moment, he would look around and say, if this isn't nice, what is? And I think that that is a really sweet reminder to notice those nice moments, you know, those little sort of mundane things that might go by unnoticed if we don't make a concerted effort to be grateful for them. That's, that's really nice. Well, Gabrielle, it's been a, a, an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Thank you very much for, for being a guest on the show. And I'm sure people are going to love what, what you've been sharing. With I'm glad to hear that. And the feeling is mutual. So I thank you. Lovely. Thank you. Next week is episode 10, and we welcome back Vicky Rouchet. She was on the podcast uh, sometime last year, and I've invited her back again because one of the things that's obviously happened in the last year, there's been 
a lot of stress and anxiety over the various lockdowns and so on. And that obviously affects health, anxiety and stress. And something else that affects stress, um, that really increases stress, is anxiety over finances and money. And this is an area where Vicky is a real expert. And so we really dig into this and she gives some really good habits on ways that we can help to improve our financial situation, you know, whatever that may be for, for different people. So that's next week's episode number 10 with Vicky Wuxiai. If you know anyone who you feel would really benefit from some of the advice that Gabrielle shared with us, please do share the episode with them. Why not take a screenshot and, and share it to them or, or maybe just send them a, a link to, to the podcast. Please do leave a review. Why not subscribe? And I hope you have a great week.